You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Well, hey, good morning, church. If I have not met you yet, my name is Jason Swords, and I serve as one of your lay elders and the chairman of our board. I'm going to be reading a scripture today from 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Revelation chapter 14, the first five verses uh, are this picture of uh, the church of Jesus across time and space worshiping uh, before the throne of God. And then the scene shifts from that um, to three angels that are sent out from heaven and they hover between the space of heaven and earth and they proclaim uh, the gospel, that, that what's being communicated uh, in that chapter is that the church of Jesus Christ has supernatural help when it comes to the good, hard work of gospel proclamation. It's not that the angels do the work, although, man, I have met people in other parts of the world who have come to Christ via a dream, or even some would claim uh, a visitation. What's in view here is not that angels evangelize, but rather the church is supernaturally empowered in her proclamation of the gospel. And the second angel, uh, as it comes from the throne and it flies like an eagle, this is all the imagery of Revelation 14, flies like an eagle over the world, makes this proclamation, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who has made the nations drunk with the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, that proclamation by the angel goes out not in some future tense, but across the church age. If you remember our study in the book of Revelation, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. So in Revelation 14, when we're hearing about an angel that flies between heaven and earth and says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. He's not talking about in that moment the literal, physical Babylonian empire, which by the way, fell hundreds of years, if not a thousand years before this was written in 96 AD. What's in view in this moment is throughout the church age, that time between Jesus's ascension and his ultimate return and the consummation of all things, there will be these moments when the brokenness of the world becomes so vivid and so in our faces that we have a shot at renewal. That when this angel soars between heaven and earth and makes the proclamation that Babylon has fallen, those who have ears to hear will wake up to the reality that our way of life is broken. And I hope by the grace of God we're in such a moment. I hope by the grace of God we're waking up to what have we done? What have we built? What is this? 
And that that might in turn turn our eyes back to what I believe is our only real hope. In the past two weeks, we have been rocked by the deaths of 31 people, 19 of them fourth graders, at the hands of two 18-year-olds. We are not going to be the first ones in human history to ask all the questions you have to ask when that pops up on your feed. We will not be the first to go, where were you, God? We're not going to be the first to go, help me understand this. We're not going to be the the first to even struggle a little bit with the paradox of God's goodness and beauty in light of the nastiness of this moment. You, You couple this with what appears to be just wave after wave after wave after wave of evil and wickedness right in front of us. How are we to process such things? Well, here, here's why I love uh, the Bible. Like, like the Bible never shies away from any of these things. The Bible's a, a grimy book. It does not present to you or me a picture of reality that's inconsistent with our own experience. The Bible doesn't shy back from these moments. It asks you to lean in and understand these moments as best we can. Being created beings and not the creator I mean, gosh, there are prayers in the Bible. There are the Psalms ask. We read it in the response of reading. Like David says, hey, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Are you going to turn your face on me forever? Like Jeremiah, Jeremiah would just be an awkward hang, the weeping prophet. But he makes all sorts of accusations against God. He asks why the wicked get away with wickedness. Um, The prophets as a whole highlight the evil and wickedness of the world and God's judgment concerning it. And the whole book of Job dives into the question of evil and suffering. The Bible doesn't shrink back from a moment like this. It seeks to draw your attention to consider things we might not be considering. It doesn't ask you to just swallow easy bumper sticker theology. It doesn't ask you to not feel what you're feeling. It doesn't ask you to pretend that you're not feeling what you're feeling. It doesn't tell you to stop being angry. It doesn't tell you to stop being sad. It invites you into all the what in the world is going on. And to be met there by Jesus. I, I picked this passage, one, because my heart went to it as the week kind of progressed. It's been a wave after wave of terrible things the last month, maybe the last few years. And, and so I wanted to kind of take us to this passage to highlight the, the process of lamentation, the process of lament that takes us out the other side with hope and doesn't leave us in despair. And so if I could turn your attention back to this passage, 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6, starts like this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So I just want to stop there. Like like I have tried um, to say for years now that the message of the Bible, like Genesis to Revelation, you want to condense that into three words? Here's the three words. God with us. That's the story of the Bible. That breaks forth upon creation. When God creates man and woman in his image, he creates them and he puts them in the garden. The Bible is clear that he was with them without any separation. They were designed for him. He was in their midst. And and if you've been in church long at all or you know the story, sin enters the cosmos through the rebellion of the man and woman who say, we don't want your rule and reign. We don't want this. We want 
our own way. We want to do things the way we want to do with them. And the relationship, the vertical relationship between God and man, which is what we're meant to run on, was fractured. And in so fracturing that vertical relationship, horizontal descended into chaos. In fact, it wasn't long after sin enters the cosmos that we have our first murder. Not long after that, we have our first rape and the world descends into madness. So much madness that Genesis 6-5 says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This becomes the template or the cycle that we watch mankind operate in throughout the rest of the pages of scripture and throughout human history. God then establishes the tabernacle among his people. He returns. He moves towards them in his presence and they enjoy renewal and they enjoy freedom and they enjoy flourishing and then they forget the good graces of God and they break covenant and go out on their own and the descent begins again. We read this in Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If that doesn't lay across our day, I don't know what else does. In fact, this is not a a picture of freedom, but, but actually destruction. Uh, Like the people of God actively began to sacrifice their children to the Canaanite god Moloch, which where they would boil. There was a vat of gold in it and there was a vat in Moloch's stomach and they would boil their children. They would burn their children alive to sacrifice to this demonic god. Like the people of God, the ones that were delivered out of Egypt, the ones who had been given the law and the covenant and the promises, the one that had sat at the base of Sinai and watched the power of God, the ones that had been supernaturally fed and provided for, the ones that had been healed of diseases, the ones who had been given the law and the promises, killed their children. David would lament like this in Psalm 106, 37 and 38. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Daryl Johnson is right when he says governments or cultures that step out from under the rule of God do not become more divine. They become demonic. Governments and cultures that exalt humanity as the measure of all things do not become more humane. They become more bestial. And look at me, the bestial destruction of these principalities and powers is always on women and children first. It is always on women and children first. It is always on women and children first. And you and I right now are in the middle of a kind of social experiment that is doing horrific damage to women and children. 
In the middle of the industrial revolution, there was this whole new way of doing life. People moved from the farms and came in and were working in factories and and we didn't know how to do it, and, and we didn't certainly have a guide in it. And so what ended up happening is women and children were brutalized in those days. If you remember, uh, maybe, maybe you don't, I'm, I'm a nerd, uh, Upton Sinclair. Anybody read The Jungle or remember reading The Jungle? love pastoring a nerd church. And and so when you read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, you read all these horrific things that happen to women and to children and to the family unit and to the brutalization that occurred in that day. And and in that book and in several other things, the the angel said, uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And things were reordered. And things were reordered. We're in the middle of a technological revolution right now and the same thing's happening again. Like, guys, we're just having this kind of big social experiment about what screen time actually does to our kids. Gosh, we're even starting to get preliminary data and and nothing's changed. Like, we see the anxiety, we see the depression, we see the crushing comparison, and yet, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to to do it? This is what happens when men and women and cultures move away from God and establish humanity as the ultimate pursuit and gain. You get bestial. Things grow dark. They always grow two things, sexually perverse and crazy violent. You get out from under the rule and reign of a creator God. Things always get sexually perverse and they get brutally, brutally violent. Where we see horrific violence like we saw the past month or demonic perversion like was was revealed in the SBC findings, we see cultures, that of a nation state and that of a denomination that has drifted from the presence and power of God and established their own metrics of success outside the kingdom. You want me to say that again? Let me say it again. Where we see horrific violence like we saw the past month or demonic perversion like was, like was revealed in the SBC findings, we see that a culture, whether of a nation state or a denomination, has drifted from the presence and power of God and set up metrics of success that are outside the kingdom of God. In the church, it is not butts and dollars that makes one successful. It's faithfulness and, and courage to be about the fullness of God's kingdom. It is not the size of your building, but the faithfulness of your right good conviction that God honors and blesses. It's only, it's only even been a new reality that the bigger the building, the more successful. The, the bigger the church, the more evidence that it is that God's moving. Oh gosh, no, there, there can be massive gatherings of very empty, shallow people who have no real surrender to the God of the Bible. So so what happens when you get outside the power and presence of God is you drift, and the drift is never towards what's good, right, and beautiful. Always what's going to destroy and do harm. So the lesson from the scriptures for us in a moment like this is that of humility, that that we should humble ourselves. And so um, this is 2 Chronicles 7.14. There's some contextual things that if I had more time, I would do today, but I, I want today to be short and to the point, but you might very well know this passage. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, 
Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Here, here, look at me. In a moment like this, everybody's got a quick, non-complex fix. And it's absurd. I mean, you're probably seeing the same things I am. If you just do this legislation or you would make this move over here, you would address the mental health or or you would come over here and do this or you would go. The the reality is there are so many streams flowing into this train wreck of a culture that's ours right now. That you're not solving any of that with this little step or this. I'm not saying those steps might not be needed and necessary. I'm saying none of them address the heart. And what we need to feel as Christians, maybe especially as Christians, is that this is unfixable if God doesn't act. You will not fix Western civilization at this moment with a new set of legislation. To feel powerless, like you probably felt this week, is a gift of God's grace meant to have us enter the fray. It's humbling ourselves before God. It's acknowledging that this is broken beyond repair. It's being honest that it looks like there's no fix and then asking the one who actually can to do so. That is how we lament. We we don't lament by memeing it up and getting into arguments about the Second Amendment online. No, we, we humble. This is beyond repair, God. Help us. There, we've, we've got so little we can do with how broken our boys and girls are right now, how lost they are. Help us. What are we going to do if you don't? It's the humbling, listen, of the people of God. And, and if you're like, well, what about the secular world? The secular world's going to be the secular world. The, the call, the weight of the word of God is let my people lament. Let them humble themselves. Let them turn their face to me. Like we are the priests of this culture. We are the intercessors for this moment. We are in a very real way the spiritual moral leaders, which is what makes what the SBC was, the executive committee of the SBC was guilty of. Even more heretic when the priests betray their people. So I've told you for years now, like this is our moment in time. And that means desperate humility for God to do what we will be unable to bring about. Humility is the first movement. The the second movement is, is one that I've always just found so powerful. It's this idea that's the next line in the passage of casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. There are prayers in the Bible that feel like they shouldn't be in there. So let me do this. Let's imagine you're in home group. You're having home group tonight. People show up. You have some hors d'oeuvres out. And then you get in your circle. We are affiliated with the SBC, so it's a circle. And you kind of start praying in a circle, right? You can't pop around like that. That's way too charismatic. So it's just in a, in a circle. You might even squeeze the hand next to you to keep it moving when you're done because you don't want to accidentally pray over the top of someone else. And somebody prayed this. Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. 
You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day long. Everyone mocks me. Like, can you imagine someone in your group? Tell me you wouldn't like scoot. Hey, man, you all right? Come here. Like, are you okay? Do you share some more. What's going Like, this is Jeremiah. He's kind of a big deal, huh? He ain't like a minor prophet. Dude's a major prophet. And what does he say to God? Here's his prayer, right? He's in the middle of it. The world's falling apart around him. And what does he say to God? You deceived me. You used your power to overcome me. Look at me. I'm just mocked by everyone around me. You overpowered me. You tricked me. You're a liar. I'd certainly be scooting my chair, (laughs) right? But that's, listen guys, that's in the Bible. And then David who I love because he's all over the place. I find myself in David all the time because he's got these really high highs. Like, here's everywhere I go. If I go to there, you are. If I come to the high, if I'm there, there you are. And then like turn the page. It's like, where are you? Why will you forsake me forever? <laughs> so look at this, Psalm 13, one and two. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson and the invitation. In lament, we're invited to carry or to cast onto Jesus what we cannot carry. You tracking with me? Like, There is a kind of anger that I can't carry before it burns me alive and makes me a cynic and fills me with rage. So what's amazing about these prayers is God turns his face towards them. The beauty of lament, the beauty of what we're trying to do today is that that like whatever it is, it's welcomed in the presence of God. We don't have to hide from him what's actually going on in us, whether that be doubt or cynicism or sadness or, or rage. We get to throw it on him because he's strong enough to carry what we are not. He can hold what we cannot. And the beauty of lament is that Jesus doesn't watch it from afar, but sits in it with us. Have you ever read the 23rd Psalm? Why? Why do you fear no evil in the valley of the shadow of death? For thou art with me. When I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid. Why are you not afraid? Well, because you're here. Do you know the book of Hebrews says that you have an empathetic high priest? That means he knows it's scary to be us. He he knows that we're limited in what we see. He, He knows our breaking point. He knows what we can handle, and he's there. And it's only bad Bible Belt teaching that would have you pretending that all that's not going on in you when the God of the Bible has invited you to bring it to him. Cast it on me. I care for you. I can hold that. Augustine, who's my ancient friend, said that life as a finite human stuck inside of time is like having your face pressed up against a stained glass window. That there are times where it just looks like jagged, broken glass because being inside time, we can't get far enough back to see what God's up to. God knows it's scary to be us, so the invitation is cast it upon me. You you angry right now? Are you the kind of angry that'll burn you up? Just give it to me. I'm just. I am just. I'm not looking past this. 
Are you sad? Come, man, I'm, come here. I'll weep with you. Are you wrestling with how I can be good and, and things like this happen? Come in here. Come bring it to me. I have stronger legs than you ever will. Cast your anxiety. I care for you. You cannot hold this. I can. Bring it to me. Lay it on me. I will walk with you through it. And then the last point here, and in fact, let's, will you put that Peter passage back up? If you have your Bible open, let's just look at it together. So casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then listen, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't underestimate evil. We shouldn't be shocked by evil in the world. The Bible's filled with telling us it exists. That you and I, and I pray this is one of those moments where the angel above us has fallen, fallen as Babylon the Great. Because I think even some of that, some of our own culture has leaked up into the church. Like you and I are not on a cruise ship right now as a church where we ring our bell and Jesus shows up with that virgin daiquiri for us. No, no, you, you and I are caught up in cosmic conflict. We, we are right in the middle of an epic war for the souls of men and women. You and I find ourselves not on some cruise, but on a, a battleship. And, and I fear many of us have no comprehension for demonic powers and principalities that are at play around us and behind us that long to destroy us, destroy our marriages, destroy our children, ravage a generation, and, and eradicate us from the face of the earth. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The devil, real, seeks to devour, to destroy, seeks the opportunity to. And, and here we are, you know, working on moral betterment, which, which is a thing. But there's something bigger, greater, and darker playing in the background that I think we need to wake up to. Kind of the anti-supernaturalism of the church. Kind of we can fix everything with the right grid or program or system. The lack of emphasis on zealous prayerfulness holiness, even being sober-minded in regards to our own hearts, lives, and families. We are a culture that steeps, steeps itself in sexual perversion and grotesque violence. Try to think of a show or a movie that doesn't use that as its primary hook. I don't even know if you've noticed this. Regardless of the show we're watching, the first couple of episodes, you better have that remote in your hand. Maybe it'll chill out after a while, but right out of the gate, they're trying to hook you with sex and violence. I think we're so immersed in it, we, we've lost sight of how much we're actually drinking in. Not only ourselves, but even for our children. So let me, parenting confession, as I've, had to wrestle through all this this week. 
Um, as we've, as Lauren and I have tried to navigate being mom and dad to our three kids, we, we had this conversation early on that we were going to try to thread the needle. And, and what I mean by that is we don't want to so shelter and protect our kids that they just get destroyed the second they leave our house or exit the Christian bubble. But we also, in the same way, didn't want to, you know, elevate worldliness as something to accept or to give into. And, and so that was the line we've tried to walk. And I, I think maybe we have fallen short, specifically on the violent front, um, where I think we were, we were good and diligent on the sexuality stuff and probably weren't as tight on the violent stuff. When I think of things I've watched with my son and, and, and things that like I just ushered him into. And I believe that the grace of God covers those things and that every parent in the room will wake up one day and go, man, I overprotected or underprotected. And then I think in uh, their twenties and thirties, my kids will come to me and let me know how I failed them. And I'm ready to own that and let them know in the next decade, you'll realize how I failed you some more. And I'm here to own that whenever you want to talk about it, because all I am is human. And so I can look right now and go, dang it, how do you somewhat put the genie back in the bottle for a a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old who are in my house? The 19-year-olds, you know, I can't control that anymore. But how, how do you put the genie back in the bottle when you start to wake up to, oh man, I think I've underestimated how, how our culture's violence shapes and molds and pulls out of a, a posture of empathy. And, and, and how, do you, how do you do that? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you this week, I just woke up to, to feeling like I failed here. And yet I do trust the grace of God to cover my failures. But how do we stand? I mean, th- this is the command. How do we be sober-minded in this day and age. We're, we're meant to be a, a completely different plausibility structure than the world around us. How do, how do we do that? How do we live lives of peace? How do we uh, lament and keep our eyes open for this very real enemy that we have and not give into ideological solutions to spiritual problems? Do I think there probably needs to be some legislative changes? I do. I do think that. Do I think that we had better start going after young men hard with a compelling vision of masculinity? I do. We're losing them. Do I think any little tweak here, tweak there is going to fix this culture? No. Doesn't mean we don't do those things. It means we stay desperate for God to do what we cannot. Now, here's how I want to end our time together today. Um, First Thessalonians, a beautiful verse in Thessalonians that just commands us to not mourn like those who don't have any hope. So as we look to the cross and as we understand unseen realities, we know that Christ is on his throne, that ultimate victory is ours that God is a just judge who will rightly judge what is evil and ultimately destroy it. So we don't mourn as those who are without hope. We mourn as those who are a day closer to the fulfillment of all our hopes. But in the space between, we've been given the gift of lament and it's the gift I'm trying to give us today as a family of faith. So I've asked Lauren to end our time together by singing a song that's really ministered to our whole house this week. It's just been on repeat. And and so here in a moment, she's going to come out with the band. She's going to sing it over us. And here's my encouragement to you. 
that you might bring whatever else is left in there. Whatever has not been given attention, whatever has not been dealt with. And so if there's still a deep amount of sadness in your soul, I'm going to ask you just to, as Lauren sings over you, this beautiful song, that you might just lay that at the feet of Jesus. If there's rage in there, it's going to burn you up, man. It's not going to solve anything. It's just going to destroy you. If you're really doubting with cynicism and, and, and doubt right now, will you just bring that to him? I, I promise you, he can hold up under the weight of your doubt and cynicism if you'll just be honest with him about it. There's some easy bumper sticker theology here that makes all this click. We just come into his presence and let him minister to us. We just come into his presence and ask the spirit to do what we can't do. And so let me pray over us. And then if you'll just stay seated, Lauren's going to sing this. And then you just, man, you just sit in this and take whatever you need to take into the presence of Jesus. Father, I bless these men and women. Man, there's a lot of different backgrounds and stories, a lot of different empathetic capacities, a lot of different views on this or that. But what we come with today is we have seen that Babylon has fallen. We have seen that our way of doing life isn't working in our culture. And so we ask you, help us. There's a whole generation at stake. Help us. You pour out your spirit on us. Will you move in power in our day? Will you let us be a part of the humbling among your people that's required? And will you comfort those today? that are still processing unimaginable loss? Will you heal the places that nothing else will? And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.